Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are turning over a new leaf in our reading of Patrick O'Brien's great Aubrey Maturin novel series. Mike, tell us about this new leaf that we're turning over. Where were we up to last time? What stage in the canon are we at this time? Oh, I'd be delighted to, Ian. Well, before last week's audiobook episode, we read the last chapter of The Yellow Admiral. The Bologna was paid off and laid up in ordinary. Jack asked to be, if you will, suspended from the Navy list to keep from being yellowed so he could pursue a secret mission in Chile along with Stephen. Jack and Stephen spent more than half a year at home with their families before bringing them all to Funchal on the surprise. Napoleon escaped from Elba and Lord Keith called Jack back as Commodore of a squadron to block the Strait of Gibraltar. So as you say, Ian, you know, closing out the Yellow Admiral, this week opening up the 100 days, the squadron arrives in Gibraltar. And in the blink of an eye, we learn about so many things that have changed since what seemed like, you know, turning one page over to the next. There are unexpected deaths near and far, a threatening situation on the continent, and invaluable intelligence and naval missions for our heroes. Absolutely. So the... I would be massively surprised, Mike, if anybody is listening to this episode having not read chapter one of The Hundred Days. But ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't, be ready for spoilers. <laughs> right. Big time. <laughs> and it's a biggie. It's a biggie. So, Mike, remember how O'Brien had done such a great job of situating us in the real world timeline uh, all the way through Yellow Admiral. And now here we are. It's 1815. We are in Gibraltar, and there's a big crowd of half-pay naval officers who are using the the landscape of Gibraltar to look out from these vantage points, looking for the arrival of Commodore Aubrey's squadron due in from Madeira, as we learned last book, under the orders of Admiral Keith. And given all the work that's going on to, to bring ships back into service from being laid up in ordinary, here in Gibraltar there are only two ships waiting tied up to the mole. One of them is the flagship Royal Sovereign, and there are two 74s. There's no appearance really of the kind of wartime hubbub that you would have seen in Gibraltar at the peak of the war, even just the previous year or two before. And Mike, it's an important choice of the sort of narrative vehicle here that we're not getting O'Brien giving us the perspective of the the view of the Grand Harbour. We're not on board one of the ships with Stephen or Jack. We are on the lookout here with these two elderly naval lieutenants and they're commenting as they watch the squadron coming in how perfectly straight their line is how the squadron had been kept waiting for briseis back in uh, in funchal it turns out that, that was a, a drafting error perhaps on the part of admiral keith and meanwhile the frigate dover had been being converted to a troop ship converted back again into a frigate now of these two lieutenants or lieutenants Um, There's Arrowsmith, who's two months senior to his companion, Edwards. And Arrowsmith says he had started reading the newspaper's deaths column right after the promotions and dispatches because he's he's older and he's in that time of life when he starts to see news of people he knows in the deaths column. Edwards says the same thing. I don't read births and marriages first anymore. I go straight to the deaths. Uh, It's a really nice, timelessly kind of human characteristic 
of, of people and their perspective on the world that Orion captures really well. And Mike, Arrowsmith and Edwards, before we get into what they're talking about, is there anything to tell us about where they were in the real world at all? Well, it's interesting. We don't find, you know, at least according to Anthony Gary Brown in the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, anybody who's a historical character for these two. But he does note that there was a real Thomas Edwards who was commissioned lieutenant in 1778, but not promoted to commander until he was promoted to retired commander in 1820. So wow. essentially, you know, he's given a higher pension after 40 years of service and, and I'm sure a lot of lobbying on yeah. his behalf. So Anthony Gary Brown notes it as kind of a, an, an example of the darker side of promotion that O'Brien so often talks about in the Royal Navy. Right. And uh, they go on and uh, give us a little bit more context before we get deeper into the, 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 the big news that they're going to talk about here. They're talking about the deaths of people that they know that have, that have come about recently. One important point for anybody whose memory of the Yellow Admiral is still fresh in their minds, Admiral Lord Stranraer has passed away. There's a, there's a rumor that his surgeon and another medico, I think presumed to be Stephen Maturin, had killed him with a black draft, which is, which is funny because the two doctors had actually been bemoaning the fact that the Admiral had been overdosing himself with the, with the, the remedy that they'd given him. Edwards is not at all surprised that this had come about. He thought that it was very plausible that the two medicos might have done him, done away with him because he was not a well-liked man. He says, on reflection, I believe I should offer each or either of the physical gentlemen a glass of brandy with the occasions to offer. So not a very happy perspective on the, the character of the departed Admiral Stranra. And another character that we've come across lately, not in the most recent book, but lately in the canon, Governor Charles Wood of Sierra Leone has also died. And both men describe in their conversation here the fond memories that they had of Woods and how he had entertained entire wardrooms of shore-going sailors in Sierra Leone when the king's ships had come in. And they recalled his wife, handsome, they said, but on the learned side. Mm. And at this point, and this has all been quite sort of typical O'Brien, slightly lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek, catching up on the news gossip, but... We get to news of a different kind next, don't we? Yeah, yeah. A very heavy footfalls here. Yeah. Aerosmith asks if Edwards ever met Dr. Matron. Edward says, well, you know, I've heard of him. Clever doctor, treated Prince William, always sails with Jack Aubrey. And Aerosmith says Matron and his wife live with the Aubreys in their big place in Dorset, in Woolcombe. He says, you know, Edwards, you're a Dorset man. And Edward says, oh, yeah, I remember seeing her at horse meets. She breeds Arabs. She's a good horsewoman and an uncommon fine whip. And Aerosmith replies, so they said. And then tells Edwards that Mrs. Matron pitched the coach, horses, and passengers over the side of the maiden Oscot Bridge right into the river. And only the groom came out alive. And wow. this... Uh, Ian, you know, this lands with such a thud. I, I mean, I, you know, having read it before, I mean, I think it's like this mental denial process completely put it out of my mind. But there it is. Boom. Diana is dead. And, yeah. you know, in this, as you point out, this incredible O'Brien fashion, no real details, no reaction from Jack or Stephen, a secondhand account drawn from a you know, a, a sentence in the newspaper discussed by two people 
you know, we've met in the middle of exposition and scene setting in the first pages of this novel. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't know about you, Ian. I, I was I was sort of blown away by this. Yeah, and I remember first time I read this, reading back through the chapter a couple of times, going, "Wait, wait, wait, hold on, this can't be the first time I'm reading about this." Right, and it's amazing, and the and the choice of having it not only described in secondhand terms in this way, but having it described by two very very minor secondary characters, you know, w- worthless. You know, an elderly half pay lieutenant is one of the lowest status people in the O'Brien canon. You know, second only to marine lieutenants playing the German flute, and that's says something i think in a sort of inverted way about the point that o'brien wanted to make as he's as he's showing this death the death of his of of a principal character now you might talk about this as being o'brien making up for the relative lack of jeopardy for any of his principal characters which was a a kind of fair criticism that people have been starting to make i think of the last uh, the last handful of books but i think it actually goes much deeper let's listen to how the lieutenants are describing and reflecting on diana I, I had the same reaction as Edwards. Edwards' reaction to this news is, oh my God, cried Edwards. And after a pause, my wife disliked her, but she was a very beautiful woman. Some people say she was a demi-rep. And I, I had to look this one up, Ian, a woman yeah. whose chastity is considered doubtful. He goes on, she had some astonishing jewels. There was talk of a Colonel Chumley. And I, I think I hear he means, you know, talk about perhaps a relationship with Diana. And he says, after pausing, you know, and it's said that the marriage was not a happy one, but she is dead. God rest her. I say no more. Yet I doubt I ever see her like again. And this just, oh, it's, ah, man. You know, I had the same feeling. I, I doubt I'll ever see her like again. Yeah, oh. and it's a it's a very unlikely thing for a lieutenant to say, having met her once at a, at a function or something. But it's absolutely you know O'Brien thinking about his the, the real world events of his life right. uh, and thinking about what the, the the passing of Diana means to Stephen. Because let, let's check in on O'Brien's personal chronology here, and if if you're interested in the topic of O'Brien's later life, I highly recommend you get out and read the biographies if you're interested in it. All the way through O'Brien's life as an author of the Aubrey Matron novels, he had worked hand in hand with his wife, Mary, who was his thought partner and especially editor-in-chief of his first drafts. Now, by this point, he's very old. He was in his 80s. She was in her 70s. And partway through, I think, writing Yellow Admiral, they had done this really great combination. They'd done several promotional tours in great, great celebrity to the US and to the UK and other places. And they had been on this great kind of uh, visit to the UK, culminating in a very grand dinner aboard HMS Victory in Portsmouth with admirals and cabinet ministers and celebrities and Walter Cronkite and Charlton Heston, all these people hailing the achievement of O'Brien and the canon. They had gone back to Collier at the end of that year. Dean King's biography talks about how the growth and the development of the town had started to sort of eat away at the solitude and the peace and the quiet tranquility of their little house up on the hill. And in March 1998, Mary passed away following what had been, I think, altogether a long illness. Now, The 100 Days, the book that we're talking about now, was published in October of 1998. Most people, Dean King especially, loads of people who kind of follow the story and the biographical information about Patrick O'Brien, certainly people that we've spoken to who are in touch with the O'Briens at the time, clearly associate 
the passing of Mary with O'Brien's choice to, to kill off Diana Maturin and to give his character, Stephen, who is often the sort of mouthpiece and the avatar, if you like, for Patrick O'Brien, to give Stephen Maturin some of that same experience that O'Brien is going through. Now, you can argue about whether there's enough time involved in the kind of chronology, uh, open question, but it's maybe even the way that it's spoken about. I think you might have found it very difficult talking about a, a very sudden, very traumatizing, very immediately described first-person account of the death of a wife in, in the circumstances that he was in. So the choice that he's made here makes sense. And Mike, it, it also makes us look back a little bit that her, Diana's death is called by caused by the overturning of a coach at this bridge at Maiden Oscott. We had had the bridge described in many times over in the previous book as a tricky point to navigate, dangerous. You know, Diana navigating it with kind of contemptuous ease. He set up all of this jeopardy relating to the bridge and to Diana as a uh, as a driver of a coach and, as, and, and a team of horses. And you kind of wonder: Did he ever intend for this? planted idea to pay off quite so soon, quite so tragically as it has done here. Edwards and Aerosmith are still talking. They're staring out. They're watching the ships. The crowds are growing larger. They're still thinking about, you know, Stephen and Diana's marriage, the governor and his wife's marriage. And Edwards asks Aerosmith if he can think of any marriage that could be called a happy one after the first blush. Edwards, who is single, adds that, you know, he thinks there's really something to be said for a bachelor's existence. Interestingly, we'll learn that Aerosmith is not single in a minute, but (laughs) Aerosmith says he really can't think of many and recalls that poor Wood, the governor and his wife, entertained all the time in Sierra Leone so they wouldn't have to sit down at table alone together. Ah, now, he says, but, and, and maybe he's recalling to mind the fact that he's married, as we'll find out in a minute. He recalls the quote, though matrimony has its pains, celibacy can have no pleasure. And, and this is a variation of a quote from a character in Samuel Johnson's book, you know, The History of Rasilis, Prince of Abyssinia. You know, that quote is marriage has many pains, but celibacy has no pleasure. So, you know, this is a theme that we see O'Brien returning to throughout the canon. You know, marriages, could there be happy marriages? And man, we're we're really nailing it here pretty hard. Yeah. And especially in juxtaposition with an event that very, very clearly points to O'Brien's own marriage. And uh, there's no suggestion in any of the biographical content um, that he was anything other than very, very dedicated to Mary. Who, and she is the dedicatee of this book, as she has been to others uh, of other books as well. Anyhow, as, as you say, Mike, we're going to learn some more about the, the, the family lives of these two lieutenants here. Arrowsmith's daughter joins them up on this lookout uh, and asks, which ship then is the surprise? And like many young ladies, she's heard that this dashing Captain Aubrey is, is quite the eye candy. She's a bit disappointed then when she points the telescope borrowed from her father uh, to one of the ships and sees a short fat, red-faced man, as she calls him, on the quarterdeck. Can't believe that that's the famous Captain Aubrey. And her father puts her right, points her to the pomone. She asks, who then is the very tall, fair-haired man wearing a rear admiral's uniform and holding his hat under his arm? Why, Lizzie, he says, that is your famous Jack Aubrey. And she says, oh, isn't he beautiful? (laughs) Yeah, right. And, And rather too old for you, but never mind. Um, the 17-gun salute to the commander-in-chief breaks out on the Pomone, answered in turn very promptly by the flagship's 15-gun reply to Aubrey's 
pennant rank now. Uh, and of course, the flagship also hangs out the signal Commodore Repair Aboard Flag. So this little squadron of Aubrey's is being welcomed into the establishment in Gibraltar. And again, through the eye of the telescope, she's noticing what's going on aboard the Pomone. She asks, who then is the little man in the black coat and drab breeches besides Aubrey? Oh, that will be his surgeon, Dr. Maturin. They always sail together. He can whip off an arm or a leg quicker than any man in the service. And it is a joy to see him carve a saddle of mutton. And, and, and Mike, this is, this is our first sight of Stephen Maturin from far, far, far distance, the grieving husband. Remember in the last book that he had shaped up a little bit in terms of his dress. Coming back to see Diana, he was all in his finery. And now it looks like he's back to wearing pretty downbeat clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we jump ahead. Jack is being received aboard the flagship, the Royal Sovereign, by her captain. Uh, and he shows Jack to the Admiral's splendid quarters where Queenie is waiting for him. We remember mm. Queenie here. And O'Brien gives us some background on Jack and Queenie's relationship, sort of summarizing it by saying it's a steady, uncomplicated friendship and a pleasure in each other's company. So it's it's kind of, you know, this, you know, we don't see Jack kind of with this relationship with any other woman in, in the canon, I think, which is really yeah. neat. <laughs> She's so happy to see Jack with his broad pennant, glad they caught him before he was away in what she calls a mere hydrographical tub. <laughs> and you know, she's she's interested in his naval career continuing in the right fashion here. And she's so sorry that she and the Admiral, both very distracted, she explains that, had not seen him on Common Hard. So when Jack felt he had been dissed there, yeah. you know, he congratulates her on becoming a Viscountess. And Jack asks if the Admiral prefers to be, in, in O'Brien's word, addressed as Lord Viscount Keith, like Nelson in his time, or just as plain Lord K. And Queenie says, oh, just plain Lord, even though Nelson loved the formal court usage. Yeah, this is kind of a nice, you know, a little bit of, you know, Jack loves Nelson. Yeah. Jack also incredible respect for Lord Keith. And here is one of those things where I think Jack is a little more like Lord Keith than Nelson yeah. here. Queenie goes on, Keith values his flag, as we know Jack so desperately wants to have one. But she says he doesn't give a hoot about such things as formal titles. Yeah. And of course, he, he had been a lord. He'd been a junior lord. He'd been a baron or a baronet. I can't remember before now. And, and, and like Nelson, he'd gone through the rank of baronetcy before he'd been promoted to, to Viscount, which is a whole other big deal of, of lordliness. And now we get a little bit closer to the world of how Stephen is doing. Yeah. Queenie asks on our behalf. I, I, I take Queenie as kind of, you know, the, on, on, on Team Stephen, just like all the readers are here, I think. And Jack replies, he looks older and bent, but he bears up wonderfully, and it has not done away with his love of music. He eats nothing, though. And when he came back to Funchal, having attended to everything at Wolcombe, I lifted him out of the boat with one hand. Mm. Queenie goes on to talk about Diana, says she was extraordinarily handsome, had prodigious style. Queenie had admired her exceedingly, but she says candidly, she was not a wife for Stephen, nor was she really a mother for Bridget. And Queenie goes on to ask how Bridget is doing, and wants to be sure that she hadn't been on the coach. And I think... Same for us. Queenie's asking on behalf of us because we know that Bridget was super keen to ride in the dangerous position up on the box on the coach. And Jack says that Diana and her cousin Chumley had been up on the box. 
His mother-in-law and Mrs. Williams and her companion were in the coach and a groom, Harry Willett, was up behind. So, Mike, by the way, I take this as meaning Mother Williams is gone too. Oh, absolutely. Right, yeah. right. That's, that, that's dropped in and we get no reaction from Jack, not even Jack on, on behalf of Sophie to the passing of Mother Williams, which is just dealt with in a, in a moment here. Jack then is glad that Padine had not gone on the coach that day. Um, Bridget doesn't seem to have been gravely upset, was deeply attached though to Sophie and to Mrs. Oakes. And Queenie expresses a bit of a worry about Stephen not eating and uh, asks about whether it might be okay to invite him over for a private dinner with their great cook and a few select people. The, the more I think about this, the death of Mrs. Williams and n- no response at all from Jack, I think that's an, a, that's an O'Brien perspective rather than a Jack Aubrey perspective. I, I can imagine that O'Brien might not have wanted to dwell on, uh, on this and he gave his character Jack uh, latitude to just skip straight past the news of the passing of his mother-in-law. Um, and I think on another day, um, thinking about, in, in a different context, about his mother-in-law dying in a coaching accident, we would have heard something about it and we would have talked about or speculated about Sophie's reaction. I thought it was only fair. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Diana but, was about the only person who could keep Mother Williams in check. Say, okay, if I'm taking Diana off the chessboard, I'm going to take Mother Williams off the chessboard. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. We won't have that to deal with anymore. Right? Oh my gosh, it is becoming like Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, having set up the potential for a little bit of a social engagement with Stephen, Queenie goes on to round out this conversation by saying Lord Keith is going to be in the Mediterranean for only a short while. Um, a new admiral, Admiral Pellew, and this is the, the real world Admiral Pellew that we'll talk about in a second, uh, is coming out to take over from Keith. And she asks whether Jack had ever got along okay with Pellew. And Jack says, I have a great admiration for him, a, a dashing and successful frigate captain. And for Jack to describe him in that way, puts him in the, in the position of being a rival as much as uh you know an admired superior officer but not he said not quite the veneration that i have for lord keith so there you go that, that's that's pellew dealt with many people in, including anthony gary brown think that sir edward pellew's early career which jack has kind of just alluded to here was another inspiration along with cochran for jack's fighting spirit for a lot yeah. of the small ship and frigate actions early on. And we've mentioned Pellew before because he was one of these captains who actually jumped in, swam, and saved people's lives from drowning. And, you know, there's thought that, you know, maybe that was O'Brien's inspiration for Jack's trait of having that. Now, we just heard about him recently, you know, supposedly when Harding was master's mate on the Dwadalam, you know, Pellew was the captain of the Indefatigable. So, you know, we've got him now we're going to meet another character model somewhat after Pellew later in this book. So let's save the big historical yeah. you know, reveal about him. Uh, but I just want to make sure that you don't do what I did at first. Don't confuse you know, this Sir Edward Pellew with Sir William Pellew, who we met in Reverse of the Medal. Because these right. are two very different characters, yeah. <laughs> even though they're both Admiral Pellews. Right? <laughs> very good. Now... The Admiral walks in and greets Jack. I, I think we've always known that Lord Keith, as an Admiral to pay a call upon, is you know, n- nice and easy potatoes for, for Jack here. He's on good terms. He's always going to get a fair hearing. He's not going to get any kind of tyranny. And uh, Jack 
takes his chance straight away to congratulate him on being Lord Viscount. Bit of flattery, never does anybody any harm. Uh, the Admiral says that actually he said that I, I should be degraded for having ordered you to wait for the Briseis if he if he realised that th- that particular clause in the orders would have held Jack up to this extent, he would have given Jack more freedom. And of course, Jack has been scrupulous in the past to take care to pay attention to people's written orders um, under the aegises of people like Admiral Hart, but that's a whole other uh, whole other situation there. The war situation in Europe now has become complex. Napoleon had entered Paris, cheered in by 600,000 people. General Ney joined him with 150,000 well-armed king's troops. Lots and lots of former prisoners of war from, that is to say, French prisoners of war who had been in captivity in England and Russia had joined him. There's the devil to pay, says Keith, using a very famous naval aphorism. There's the devil to pay and no tar hot. So he asks Jack that. Is is Maturin talking to your secretary and talking to the politicos? He is, says Jack, even though Maturin is shunning ordinary company, given his bereavement, He is in any case dead set on the war. He's informing himself by any means possible. The Admiral then assumes that Maturin would not want to accept an invitation to dine aboard the Royal Sovereign. And Jack agrees, but says he'd still be very happy to discuss any way of bringing down Napoleon with the utmost vigour. This is now the, the mainspring that's keeping Stephen Maturin going. And Keith is really grateful that he's got a resource like Stephen Maturin. Asks then if Jack can have Stephen Maturin aboard after the evening gun so that they can begin to do some information exchange about the political situation here. Now, Key says that when he had sent for Jack, he thought that this squadron of the Pomona and the Surprise and three or four other ships might be enough in a pinch to guard the passage. And that was the tenor of the orders that Keith had written back in Funchal. But now he says, I'm going to need to divide the squadron up into at least three parts just to get done the things that I need to get done. I've got so few ships Queenie excuses herself, reminds the Admiral to not wear himself out because he's got an evening meeting with somebody called Gonzalez and says he'll send a servant up with tea, a servant called Geordie, which I I appreciate in terms of the name of the servant, probably a gentleman from the northeast of England. So now we get then a more detailed description of the uh, the problems besetting the alliance. Is that a fair way to put it, Mike? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and we're, you know, having you know just sort of dealt with diana and things in a sentence we're getting incredible amounts of detail now on the situation both to jack and later to stephen here lord keith explains that wellington has ninety-three thousand british and dutch troops and blucher has a hundred and sixteen thousand prussians so you know if we're kind of running total so that's two hundred nine thousand troops uh-huh. and they're in the low countries waiting until schwarzenberg with 210 austrians all right we're up to 419,000, and barclay de tolle you know who is slowly advancing with 150,000 russians and they're waiting for all of these troops to gather against the rhine so you know total 569,000 here and when they're all together, the Allies are going to invade France. Now, on the other side, they're arrayed up against Napoleon with 360,000 troops. So nice advantage here. Mm-hmm. They're spread across the northern frontier and include the Imperial Guard in Paris. But you know, there's 30,000 more stationed on the southeast front and in the Vendée. So Napoleon, you know, were 569,000 if combined against 390. 
thousand. And I'm I'm doing that because O'Brien tells us Lord Keith and Jack are adding up the totals in their head. So right. All right, <laughs> save us some time here. Uh, but he notes that when Jack and Lord Keith do it, they are, as he says, making allowances for unity of command. That is, you know, this is all Napoleon's advantages, yeah. the great value of a common language and the stimulus of fighting on one's own soil under the orders of a man who had battered Prussians, Austrians, and Russians again and again, fighting with extraordinary tactical skill against odds far greater than these. So I'm, mm. you know, I'm loving that there's a setup that says, wow, sounds like you know, we're going to blow this guy out. Yeah, hold on a minute. So you know, really ratcheting up the jeopardy on the continent. Now, O'Brien tells us that Jack cannot with propriety you know, ask about the zeal or the good faith of the Austrians or Prussians or about the efficiency of their mobilization and equipment. But, the text says, the admiral's worn, anxious face told him a great deal. So we've got Jack thinking, yeah, yeah, the numbers sound good, but we know there are tons of problems and I can see it on the admiral's face here. And, and it's fascinating. We, we're getting all this set up to all the potential problems that beset the Allies. Uh, you don't have to know very much about European history to know how it's going to bear out. But actually, we're setting up the problems that beset Keith. He's got to do whatever he's going to have to do and give Jack the mission that he's going to have to, to undertake in the context of this really complicated and fractured alliance. And, well, we'll see what it is that Jack's going to have to do. It, it's by no means a guaranteed outcome, even if you know a bit about what's coming next in European history. There's a nice little Jack and Killick moment in between the Admiral and his servant, whom the Admiral castigates with his great Scottish accent. How I wish Geordie would come along with that tea. Why, Geordie, put the tray down here, you thrawn, ill-fecked gabalunzi. And I'm not going to try and do the accent. <laughs> and I'm supposing that Geordie is getting this kind of whipping because he is in fact a Geordie. He's in fact a, an Englishman from the northeast just across the border and therefore perhaps a fair target for the Admiral to throw around some uh, some lowland Scots imprecations. Gabalunzi was a word that we heard used back in Treason's Harbour. And I think there's, this is just a little bit of hijinks on behalf of O'Brien, who's always loved phoneticizing Scottish accents and taking the mickey out of them a little bit. Anyhow, now that we've had Admiral Lord Keith flexing his Scots, uh, we get back to business. He says, this summary that I've just given you and these running totals of all these forces in the Alliance is really just the soldier's side of the business. Jack, he says, you and I have got our own concerns, exactly as we were kind of getting to learn here. The French Navy's attitude differs from port to port and from ship to ship. And, and we know, because we've talked about it on the show, that not every part of naval culture in kind of traditional French naval worlds was, was strictly Bonapartist. So he says, they are, of course, extremely susceptible and any untoward incident so easily brought about might have disastrous results. So he seems to be saying that maybe the, the Navy doesn't quite feel as fully back to war yet as do all these loyal corps and brigades and regiments in the army and that maybe the Navy had started to become a little bit more Bourbon and Royalist more naturally, more quickly than the army had. So it's not a guaranteed deal that all these different distributed parts of the French Navy will line up alongside Bonaparte. The Admiral, a bit like Jack in the last book, is worried about the building programme. 
There are French men of war being built in obscure Adriatic ports, the Adriatic, you know, over to the east of the, the body of Italy. A coast filled with what he calls shipyards with prime lumber and capital shipwrights. And he calls this more or less disguised building a great evil. A great evil because he thinks that there's the possibility that there were, there could be Bonapartist officers and men waiting to take them over. But the interesting part is that it's not guaranteed. And Jack, Jack's going to dig in a little bit more to what the motivation of these officers might be. And Jack wonders... All right, so Bonaparte just escaped. How is he paying for all this? You know, this massive shipbuilding. How is he going to do this? And the admiral says that the intelligence people see a Muslim influence, possibly Turkish, the Barbary states, or all of them combined. There's already greater activity, he says, in Algiers, Tunis, and down the Moroccan coast by Napoleonic renegades with native vessels, some of them you know, the size of a sloop of war. And it's been very harmful to Allied trade, almost impossible for the Navy to deal with and likely to get worse here. And, and Ian, we're, you know, we're just starting to introduce you know, some of the real complications to the situation here. Yeah. <laughs> if then Napoleon can knock out the Russians or even part of the Austrians, there is the chance for the French Navy to sweep the Royal Navy out of the Mediterranean again. Uh, it's not all great for the British kind of occupying forces. In Malta and Morocco, the people are ungrateful. And as the Admiral says, they hate us. Um, there are potential political alliances that the French could have with Tunis and Algeria and the other piratical states, maybe the Emperor of Morocco too. And Jack recalls the p- sort of public knowledge that Bonaparte had, in his phrase, turned Turk, had declared himself to be a Muslim during the Egyptian campaign and how this might still have some um, some credence among the North African Muslim states. Jack says, yeah, I'd, I'd heard about this thing with Bonaparte, but I haven't heard of him you know, choosing no longer dr- to drink wine or choosing not to drink pork, so maybe it doesn't really bear true. He thought it was just one of those foolish things, he says, like a man says when he's running for parliament and doesn't believe Napoleon then is Muslim or circumcised. <laughs> Lord Keith puts a little button on this very humorously by saying, well, I don't know very much about Napoleon's soul or heart or private parts, but to be able to say that he's turned Turk at some point is a really important thing just now. Yeah. So, you know, now we get down to it. The Admiral says Jack needs to split his squadron up. He needs to allot a force big enough to protect the Constantinople trade, which is now starting back in convoys against these increasingly bold attacks. So I need some squadron ships for the convoy protection. He needs to still prevent any unauthorized outward or inward movement to the best of his ability. So again, you know, we got to block the straits here, the squadron's original mission. But he says now the most important task is to go up there and look into the Adriatic ports that Jack knows so well and check, you know, stop, put an end to this shipbuilding here. He says, you know, I'll give you later the names of four places that we already know ships are being built, but, you know, there could be many more. And he wants Jack to find out. He says if Jack finds any two deckers, you know, he wants him to notify the Admiral at once. But if there are any frigates, corvettes, and sloops, you know, try to stop building any unfinished ones and, and disarm them tactfully. Uh, he's glad Jack has Matron with him for that. You know, that Matron may be able to use kind of the intelligence and negotiations of the tack here. 
And he's reminding Jack, he says, an incident would, as I have said, be disastrous. So, you know, don't upset these people. However, he goes on, of course, if there is a clearly expressed intent of joining Bonaparte, you must burn, sink, or destroy as usual. So, boy, now we got, you know, like those old orders where, you know, he's thinking, okay, Hart's trying to trap me here. This is not Keith trying to trap him, but he's saying this is a really delicate situation here. Yeah. Um, and he's going to have to move fast, right? If they, We know that this is the beginning of 1815. We know that this whole 100 days thing is going to take 100 days. So he's going to have to get his skates on to interfere with shipbuilding in the Adriatic and maybe do whatever other missions Keith has for him. So to, to choose a famous Jack Aubrey phrase here, there's not a moment to be lost. He's thinking about now how he's going to compose his fleet. If there is a courier, he says, can you send a message back and get me my tender, the Ringle? William Reed, who's a master's mate in command of the Ringle, might be of great use for this mission. No problem. I'll do that, says the Admiral. I'll also give you some more detailed orders and some estimates about what support in terms of logistics and alliances and stuff that he can expect from, from Malta when he's in Mahon. There's an invitation for Jack to dine aboard the flagship the next day and then also to convey, if he would please, feelings of concern and sympathy for the widowed Stephen Maturin, if it's not importunate. I'm like, this This feels like a very uh, carefully written 18th century view of manners. You know, I think if it was uh, a, a colleague in the naval world who'd been bereaved, everybody would have been gathering around and it would have, you know, the, the family would have closed ranks around him. But this is the 18th century world of manners and Stephen Maturin is believed to want to grieve on his own. Well, and this is this is also Stephen Matron, a mirror of Patrick O'Brien. Exactly. And I think we'll say this is how O'Brien likes to grieve as well. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So in any case, the Admiral says he's really looking forward to hearing Stephen's views on the war situation when he finally finishes his meeting with the Admiral Secretary, whose name is Campbell. And also with two men who have come over from Whitehall. And we'll pick up on those in a second. He says, don't bother asking Matron to come over, I'll send these functionaries to go and uh, sit with Stephen aboard the Pomone. Yeah, so, you know, O'Brien takes us back to the Pomone and Killick is waiting in Stephen's cabin, you know, just before the evening gun. And and O'Brien gives us an excellent exposition about the two of them, part of which points out Stephen's lack of nautical acumen but the great regard that the crew still holds him in, given his medical powers. And I wanted to highlight, you know, one line here. O'Brien writes, the placebo effect of this reputation, Stephen's reputation among the crew, had indeed preserved many a sadly shattered sailor, and he was much caressed aboard. Um, I, I thought this was brilliant. After all this talk, it's like, yeah, this is what this does. And it also resonated with me. I, I have no doubt that uh, a lot of my progress is the placebo effect of my cancer surgeon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he could work miracles, and I, I, I appreciate that he does. Yeah, he's, well, he's no less caressed for all that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Sue, if you're listening, right? <laughs> so, well, Stephen, you know, as perhaps usual, but even more so in his current state, has not dressed or shaved. Killick had laid all this out for him. Stephen's done nothing. And, you know, you know, Killick's telling him, you know, like these gentlemen have been waiting for you for, you know, the past 10 minutes. They're already here. Stephen had been spending his time reading a coded message that had just arrived by courier from Sir Joseph Blaine. So 
you know, Killick dresses him up, pops him in to see these gentlemen that Lord Keith had said he'd send over earlier. Uh, we've talked a lot about Killick and how much we like his character. It's a great moment for him as well, just to be looking after Stephen in this really, really kind of nurturing way. Yeah. Well, it's uh, Stephen's turn to be ready for some refreshment. Um, Mike, I think you and I and our listeners might be ready for some refreshment. So let's take a moment here to go get refreshed. And we'll be right back after the break. If you're enjoying the podcast and if you're listening to the show before September 5th, 2023, would you consider helping us out and heading over to the British Podcast Awards website and casting a vote in the listener's choice category? Go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and let's see where we get to. Welcome back. We are now with Stephen as he's uh, getting connected to some of the people who know about the intelligent picture around Admiral Keith and the campaign in the Mediterranean. There's a person called William Kent. Stephen's seen him before. He's in some kind of high office that's often been used to resolve disputes between government departments and between services so that confidential work can be carried on in official silence. And if he's done that, and he's done that effectively, then he's a really, really important person in the world of naval espionage. The other Whitehall man, a man called D, had always been treated with deference as an authority on Eastern matters. And like this reminds me a little bit of Professor Graham back in kind of Treason's Harbour sort of times. Somebody knows about the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople and Islam on all the states that are allied to it in the Eastern Mediterranean. He knows particularly about finance. And Sir Joseph's message to Stephen had said of him, you will, of course, remember his book on Persian literature, which seems like it was a very carefully weighted hint for Stephen to pay attention to D here. Stephen did indeed remember this book. He had his own second-hand edition of it from 1764, a work which he said had enriched his youth. And Mike, I, I can just imagine O'Brien either knowing that or hoping that he had on his own shelf a 1764 edition of a book about Persian literature. That would be a very O'Brien thing for him to have. Now, Mr. Kent, the first guy, the troubleshooter guy, um, asks if Stephen would appreciate a quick overview of the current situation. Go right ahead, says Stephen. And by the way, the readers would like it too. <laughs> very similar is this summary to the summary that Lord Keith had just given to Jack. But unlike Jack, Stephen was not affected by considerations of rank or tact or ignorance or... Uh, any of those kind of, you know, borders to polite conversation that had coloured Jack's conversation with the Admiral. So no hesitation about asking questions and getting right to it. Through all of this dialogue, then, he learned that the Dutch, the Netherlanders, were not happy about the presence of Wellington or Blucher's armies, that various rulers, commanders and war officers were at odds with each other on a wide variety of subjects, and that secrecy about plans, about orders or appointed meetings scarcely existed at all in the Austrian army. And Mike, we knew this about the Austrian army in the times of the First World War as well. Many different nationalities and dukedoms and loyalties wrapped up in the Austrian empire here. Rivalries, different languages, all in different pieces here. This is set in contrast to what he calls the effervescent sense of returning glory in France. There's a total lack of enthusiasm in many of the allied regiments and something worse not far from mutiny among the Russians, particularly the units from the wreck of divided Poland. And again, there's an echo of 
20th century military history there. If you know anything about the sad history of Poland and who was in charge of it, that was not a happy time. These ill-equipped and discontented Russians then are already 16 days behind their schedule, the schedule by which they're supposed to link up in Central Europe or other in the uh, in the Low Countries with all the other forces there. The rear guard had not even left its distant barracks, and there's this atmosphere of distrust, fear of betrayal on the part of some of the coalition members and on the part of some of the subject nations that made up the Eastern powers. And there's a little bit of an emphasis here that this potential disunity is particularly focused in the East, because I think that's where that's going to take us in terms of the plot. Yeah. So Mr. D tells him about a very similar campaign in ancient times when a more numerous army of different nations was utterly shattered by a united Persian force on the banks of the Tigris. However, when he's talking, his voice is very weak. Stephen can't really follow him a little bit. And he drifts off, O'Brien says, into his own painful reflections. Now, occasionally he heard Mr. Campbell, the Admiral's secretary, trying to lead D back to the topic, you know, talking about the threat of ships from France, from Adriatic ports. And, and he heard little else until Mr. Kent said that some of these ships might protect or carry the treasure itself. And Stephen kind of comes out of his reverie and says, the, the treasure, sir? And O'Brien mm-hmm. writes, he saw the three faces turn towards him, and at almost the same moment, he saw their expressions of surprise, even displeasure, turn to grave, unobtrusive consideration that now surrounded him, that must in decency surround him, like a pall ever since his loss became public knowledge. It could not be otherwise. His presence was necessarily a constraint. Levity, even good fellowship, Certainly mirth were as much out of place as reproof or unkindness. And again, and I'm sure not for the last time like that, sounds like O'Brien writing a Brad (laughs) O'Brien. Yes. Oh, goodness me. So now we're getting into it. This idea of treasure and this idea of divided loyalties in the East. And let's see where this is going to take us. Mr. Kent the troubleshooter guy, not the uh, Arabist guy. Mr. Kent summarizes uh, a discussion about a French intelligence agent by the name of Dumanoir and his colleagues' plans, that's to say Dumanoir's colleagues' plans, to drive a Muslim wedge between some of the forces in this alliance that we've just heard kind of dissected here, between the suspicious and slow-moving divided Austrian forces on the one hand and the lingering Russians Uh, and that if they can drive this Muslim wedge somehow between these two forces, that might disrupt the meeting of the Allies on the Rhine, which is where the whole thing is going to have its denouement. Kent reminds Stephen that Bonaparte had professed himself a Muslim, as we talked about a few paragraphs ago. And Stephen says, okay, to my mind, that really only damaged his reputation. And as far as he, Stephen, was aware, no self-respecting Muslim had taken any notice of it. And D, who is the Mideast specialist here, says, yes, that's generally true. But some of the more remote, widely separated and hostile Muslim sects had hailed Bonaparte's conversion with delight, including in a place called Asgar on the edge of the desert. And Mike, will, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but there's, there's no sure answer to where is Asgar, except it's somewhere in North Africa in amongst the, the the desert on the edges of the Atlas Mountains, so probably Morocco or um, or Algeria. Anyhow, some of these 
Muslim sects, including those in Asgar on the edge of the desert, and including heretical Shiite fraternities in European Turkey, Albania, and Monastir, close to the Northern Front, well, for them, they still might take this seriously. The way they read the Sunnah, part of the Muslim holy books, points to Napoleon as the hidden imam, the Mahdi. And Mike, what do we know about that? About this, the, the, the Mahdi character in religious yeah, writing? Yeah, this is... This was fascinating, Ian. So as as he's saying, in some sects, you know, there's a final leader in Islamic eschatology, end times, you know, and who's believed to appear at these end times before the prophet Isaiah, uh, Jesus Christ. So before Christ at the end times, this Mahdi will appear to rid the world of evil and injustice and lead Muslims to rule the entire world. So it, this is a messianic, uh, Muslim tradition in some sects. And I, I, I was kind of blown away by this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, again, we're kind of pointing towards the fact that there are deep-rooted reasons for these different sects to dislike or disbelieve each other. The idea of standing on doctrine as a way to dislike or suspect somebody else is a tale as old as time in religions besides Muslims, right? D says that the most extreme believers are the descendants and followers of a character called the Sheikh al-Jabal. Sheikh al-Jabal. And Stephen picks up on the translation of this. He says, you mean the old man of the mountains himself? Then they are the true, the only genuine assassins. I long to see one, said Stephen with a certain animation. And Dee confirms that they are. This is the, the, the little piece of kind of contemporary knowledge about the Islamic world that Stephen's got. And it turns out to be true. However, he says the assassins, the Hashashim as they're called, were not as prominent these days as they had been during the Crusades. They're a dangerous body, but there are only a few score of actual assassins. The rest are mercenaries in three related fraternities throughout European Turkey, willing and eager, he says, to massacre unbelievers, but for money. And he says they're going to wait for two months' pay to arrive before they will move. Huh. So we've got... Hold on, let's put the pieces together. We've got one Islamic sect and a ruler in a place in North Africa that are going to give some countenance to Bonaparte's uh, Islamic claims, and we've got some people on the other side of the Mediterranean in Turkey and Albania who might be willing to do something about it. So I have to put these two together somehow. And, and Stephen asks if this two months' pay is a great sum. Well, D says, well, you know, it's an amount of gold that at gold's present unheard of premium with credit virtually dead, it's far beyond anything France can put down to pay for this very well-manned force of warriors of many kinds that they're bringing together, you know, belonging to these fraternities or provided by them, you know, that will be gathered to wreck this allied plan and to give Napoleon the opportunity to engage and destroy the weakest of the opposing armies as he's done before. So instead of meeting this combined force, to pick them off one at a time. Mm -hmm. Now, Stephen wonders if the actual assassin's role might be different than the wild, impetuous assault of some of these warrior groups, these kind of famed warriors. And he agrees, you know, the assassins might target one of the generals or an imperial prince, but to have the full effect of panic, distrust, and delay, there's going to have to be a massive intervention, preferably by night. So it says, yeah, yeah, they might use the assassins, but they're going to have to do this major onslaught. So they're going to have to have this huge amount of gold to get that moving. And as you said, he had to move quickly. And th thinking of an, an intervention by discontented parties, and I, th this sounds like a job for the kind of person who not long ago was in South America fomenting 
discontent and secession from the Spanish Empire. Who better to help in this situation than Stephen Maturin? So we, we talked about the military forces and we've mentioned the treasure, but we haven't really figured out where the treasure is going to come from. So to get back to the story, Stephen and his colleagues are talking about where this money, this treasure might come from. Some of it, we learn, is from smaller sources, but the primary source is the Shiite ruler of this place, Asgar in North Africa. He, or more precisely his, his tribe, his clan, are going to send the gold. Messengers are probably in the process of being sent right now to arrange transport. And that sounds like it's going to involve ships. If the gold is going to get from where the money is in North Africa to where the mercenaries are in Albania and Turkey. Stephen expresses some surprise that this can't be done via the sort of network of investment and loan and credit and banking that he thinks would normally exist. He says, well, maybe Turkey or Tunis or Tripoli or Egypt would be cities where you could raise a million without difficulty using the existing networks of bankers. And he says, no, no, no. In this world, that's that's mistaken. He has worked as the Eastern Affairs consultant for his cousins at the bank of Rothschild. And he can say that none of them could raise that kind of money quickly. None of them could advance it on the kind of security, on the kind of promise that's on offer uh, from the French here. So he talks Stephen through an overview of the different governments and their financial setups and the economy of each nation, concluding that this tribal ruler, Ibn Hazm of Asgar, who he says runs his state like a well-run man of war and has collected gold for passage through states at the intersection of major trade routes for generations, this guy is their only hope. His gold is going to have to travel to the coast and take a ship, like we said, across the Mediterranean, probably a swift Algerine Zebek. And Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin have had some, had some beef with Zebeks in the past. Um, or maybe a galley, ditto. There's no hurry, though, because the Russians are moving slowly. And I'm like, this is obviously... Uh, an expression on the part of somebody who hasn't read history and doesn't know that everything in 1815 is going to happen in a tearing hurry. But never mind. They don't know that they only have 100 days. As far as they're concerned, for the way the Russians are, are behaving, there's time for this all to take place in its due course. He's hoping that the Royal Navy has got time to do its first stage, which is to assure that no disaffected French man of war is going to be available to help the gold over the water and to be sure that no vessel from any African shore can enter any Adriatic port. So there you go. We've got the two theatres for Jack Aubrey to play in here. We've got North Africa and we've got the Adriatic. Kent says that Sir Joseph and his colleagues suggested that Stephen's knowledge of these parts and the nominally Turkish officials governing them, you know, along with his knowledge of many important private and ecclesiastical persons here, you know, <laughs> might help Stephen bring pressure on them to cause the conspiracy to fail. Yeah, he tells them this is really important to the ministry and that Stephen is authorized to draw on the treasury for very great sums to finance things like arbitrary arrests and the like, if needed. <laughs> so the bribes are ready to flow here. Yeah. And one person, however, had said that, that, that Stephen might decline, you know, thinking that his Turkish and Arabic, you know, Arabic he'd need to use in Africa, Algiers, some of the Adriatic ports, or Asgar, doesn't meet Dr. Matron's high standards for languages. But he says Sir Joseph suggested that a lieutenant capable of writing all these languages could take the strain off Stephen's shoulders. He said Mr. D knew such a person with guaranteed discretion, a gentleman, a physician, 
whose presence might induce Stephen to agree to the mission. So they're trying to sweeten mm-hmm. the pot here. I think they, they really yeah, want Stephen in on this one. Well, Stephen's clearly keen on this. We, we've known Stephen work with sidekicks of this kind on many different occasions. And despite his sad personal circumstances, this is something that he's really, really willing to think about. Can I meet the gentleman? He asks. Well, Ken says, of course you can. He's in Gibraltar. Sir Joseph has suggested that Dr. Maturin might already be acquainted with this gentleman. And so D, the Arabist, asks Stephen if he has any strong feelings against Jews. And Stephen says he does not. And again, we've we've heard this before from Stephen in the past. Well, that's good news because the gentleman is a Spanish Jew raised as an Orthodox Sephardi and can speak the dialect, the Sephardi dialect used in Africa and in Turkey, as well as Hebrew and Arabic and Turkish. And with all of that and his kind of enlightenment brain and his studies in Paris before the revolution, he had become more liberal, meaning less ardently observant of his Jewish faith, had in fact quarreled with the synagogue, had lost many of his patients out there, but out of mere kindness had used his linguist skills to help our friend, he says. And now after many missions, has got a more formal basis for his acting with us, us here being the the Navy and the establishment, usually acting as a merchant of precious stones. So again, Mike, he's being set up as the classic Stephen sidekick. He's got the magic combo of can act as physician's assistant, speaks all languages, knows merchants, knows valuable stuff like precious stones. These are all things that we know Stephen likes. And interestingly, Stephen asked if he's married. And and I really (laughs) wondered about this one. It's like, "Mm, okay, I don't want to widow anybody else. I don't know. Even more interestingly, Kent says, well, if Stephen's worried about tomorrow's court-martial and... I'm thinking, what? Huh? And then, oh, right. The court-martial is for unnatural acts. <laughs> yeah. So he says, while he's not married, he's been reported to have two mistresses in Algiers, one black and one white. So it's like, okay, you know, this this guy is, yeah, he's he's, he's a practicing heterosexual. He's trying to tell Stephen. <laughs> uh, and I think that's not what Stephen was asking at all. But be that he, neither here nor there. Uh, He does say that the gentleman's musical skills, medical skills, and wide relations make him particularly welcome among Europeans, and his connections in Algiers, if that turns out to be the chosen port for shipping this gold, may be of the utmost value. Mr. D says that that is true, but he's thinking about this focus on Algiers and the shipment of this gold. But he insists that the Adriatic harbors and dockyards really must be targeted first. There has to be a great show of force and the elimination of potential enemies and that the clear presence of the Royal Navy will have a great effect upon the fraternities and may actually abort their conspiracy. So he's saying, okay, let's not just focus on the Algiers shipping of this gold. Let's see if we can nip this in the bud even earlier. And I think, you know, the Admiral, Lord Keith, had had kind of directed Aubrey the same way. Now, he says he will work with his cousin's banking house in Ancona. It's in Italy on the Adriatic Sea, where he can correspond with his Turkish friends in the Ottoman provinces, correspond with London by bankers' couriers, and coordinate the eastern operations. Very good. And uh, by the way, that's one of the locations that it's really, really easy to find on Tom Horn's excellent cannonade.net website. So all the way through this book, as we get into dropping names of places in North Africa, places on the Adriatic coast, including some places with old place names that are hard to locate, I really, really recommend cannonade.net. Look for the 100 days and you'll be able to see some of the places that we're talking about here. Now, 
this is not only about organizing and marshalling the money and the influence and the bankers and the communications, it's also going to be about marshalling ships. So while Stephen is having his conference, Jack is trying to figure out how to divide the squadron for these separate duties. He's going to shift his pennant of surprise, yay, to capitalize on her sailing qualities and on the reliable and trained, well-skilled ship's company. And of course, her deadly rate of fire. What was it? Three broadsides in five minutes. Ideal for the kind of quick, you know, smash and grab work he's going to have to do in dockyards in the Adriatic. For his consort, he's got some choices here. Pomone, the pennant ship that he was in to begin with, has 140 pounds more broadside weight of metal, but her captain is laid up in Funchal with his really badly broken leg. The second lieutenant is awaiting trial tomorrow for the unnatural and detestable sin, Article 29 of the Articles of War, which is what's been occupying Stephen already. Lord Keith had appointed the only qualified officer, a young man very recently made post to the command of the Pomone, but with new officers and with the outcome of this rather ugly a divisive trial, her people are going to be upset. So that's his choice. Back on the ship, Jack learns that Stephen is talking with Dr. Glover, the surgeon of the Pomone, in his doctor's cabin. And Mike, we get yet another conversation with Stephen talking about yet another interesting side plot or side mm, scenario here that's going to occupy us over the coming chapters. Yeah, that you know, it's it's amazing all the ingredients that O'Brien seems to have thrown in this martini shaker of this chapter. All yeah, exactly. these things, <laughs> and you know, and, and we may have to reach out to our listeners as well to say, what do you make of all this? So, as you say, here they are, Glover and uh, Stephen talking about impotence, and talking about impotence. Glover asks Stephen if he's heard that Governor Wood had died. And, and hmm. you know, we've had this come up several times. Now, Stephen says that he has, that, you know, Wood and his wife entertained them nobly when they came, you know, into port there on the Bologna, and that he's been trying to write her a letter in his mind. But it's, as Stephen calls it, the most difficult letter there is to write, no matter how much you esteem them or sympathize with them. And Glover is quiet for a while. Hmm. And then... He says, you know, they were both my patients in Freeport and, and in confidentiality as one medico to another, a formal expression of regret will be quite adequate. Any more might be offensive. And I'm thinking, wow, what, where's that coming from? And, and I think Glover's seeing the look on Stephen's face and thinking, yeah, the same thing. So he says, well, it was not much of a marriage he says, legally, it might not have been a marriage at all. The mm -hmm. governor was impotent and nothing answered. He said it was a sad cohabitation. They had separate rooms. You know, guilt and resentment was always there just under the surface. Uh, now, luckily, he was a very busy man. She had her own anatomical concerns. And that the usual sources of grief for a widow remaining are, are lacking that she's well off in her own right. So Stephen doesn't have to worry about, you know, her, Oh my gosh, you know, she's sort of out on her own. Now, Stephen asks some questions to Glover about this impotence and Glover's going, Nope, Nope. You know, there's no physical cause. He's not a drug addict. All the impotence was in Wood's head. Now, 
this is this is a really interesting conversation. <laughs> but right in the middle of it, you know, a midshipman comes knocking and says, "With they, you know, sends Captain Aubrey or sorry, Commodore Aubrey's compliments and the message that he'd be happy to see Doctor Matron when Doctor Matron is at leisure." Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's not only a cocktail shaker for the readers. I think this chapter is a real cocktail shaker for Stephen. All right. of these different aspects of his his life and his point of view and his motivation are being kind of swirled around him. We've got his grief for the loss of his wife, Diana. We've got his p- potential interest or otherwise in following up with the Woodses. And now we've got his connection to his family at home. Um, Jack passes on the message here that a guineaman is sailing that evening and does, asks, does Stephen want to send anything, first of all, to Governor Wood's widow, um, and second of all, any other messages for England because the Admiral has a courier ready to go to England within the hour. Along the way, Jack has asked for Reed to bring back Ringle, so therefore, hints Jack, Reed could ride up to Woolcombe, take messages, bring things back, and Stephen says he's busy composing a letter to Mrs. Woods, and in his mind, and he's going to try now to get it down on paper. And meanwhile, he has to think about his family. So he passes the message on asking for Reed to buy, in his words, a fine bold hoop for Bridget in Portsmouth and for that to be given to her along with his love and a crown piece that he'll send along. He also asks that Jack bring back his narwhal tusk that Jack has given him so that he can discuss it with an engineer, a metallurgist and naturalist in Mahon by the name of James Wright. Because Stephen wants to know if the walls, the um, spiral uh, striations on the narwhal horn have anything to do with its strength or its elasticity. Stick a pin in that. Uh, meanwhile, then, while th- this is all this message sending and hinting and writing and drafting is going on and whirling around Stephen here, um, who else should whirl in but preserved Killick? Uh, he's worried about Jack having the best uniform to wear aboard the flagship. Um, he's vaguely accusatory, I think, of Jack for having not taken the very, very best care of his splendid uh, uniform. Jack isn't all that motivated to dress up. He says he doesn't like court martials, especially, as he says, one of this kind, and wonders whether Stephen will attend. Stephen says, no, I have an appointment ashore. It's possible then, this is Stephen talking to Jack, that I might bring an assistant surgeon back with me and... He's wondering whether the gentleman could be admitted to the gun room, and if not, whether Stephen could make him his guest. Jack says, sounds like no problem. I, I think, by the way, Stephen is kind of hinting indirectly at this guy not being of the Christian faith and wondering whether that might be an obstacle besides other bits of social niceties that he's trying to observe. I, I don't know that. That's just my kind of instinct. If, says Jack, the gentleman is of a certain age and standing, the gun room would stretch a point and admit him especially since Stephen is so rarely there. And by the way, they, they really like Stephen. This gentleman, this new addition to the gun room, could stake, take Stephen's place socially, I guess. And Stephen says, yes, that's, that's not a bad idea because this person I'm thinking of is a physician. They'd studied together. And uh, even though Stephen is older, they've been together for their medical studies in Paris. So they both conclude for this new arrival to mess with the gun room is the best arrangement. And maybe, therefore, Jack might even want to invite this guy to the cabin on occasion. 
Yeah, so we've got, you know, it, it's fascinating. You know, Jack might want to invite him because this guy's a tolerable musician. And I, I love that. Oh, oh, another musical <laughs> addition here. Well, <laughs> Jack realizes that Stephen's been a little embarrassed asking about this. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I think maybe, like you said, Stephen kind of would rather have him in the gun room. He doesn't want to be around people all the time. But like you said, there might be some issues with that. So Jack just changes the subject. Leo, let's move on. And he tells Stephen that tomorrow is going to be a day of hellish turmoil because Jack is going to be shifting his pennant into surprise. And there are going to be changes made across all the ships in the squadron. And the squadron is going to be receiving two new drafts of men. So he's kind of putting Stephen on warning that it's going to be crazy around here tomorrow. And just as Jack promised, the hellish din starts before 4 a.m. All these people knowing that they're going to be moved are packing and dragging their sea chest and, you know, banging them up ladders and stuff. And they're all trying to kind of fight for space to get them, you know, oh, can't have them on deck because the decks aren't washed yet. But I want to have them as close to that as I can possibly get it. And there are quarrels breaking out about who is here first and who has precedence and everything else. And in the meantime, you know, all these boats start pulling alongside. They have to wait till the decks are dry. Hammocks are piped up in this frantic hurry. And, and these boats from the Dover and Rainbow and Ganymede and Prices, they're, they're, you know, they're sitting there and there's confusion. There's an officer down below trying to handle the quarrels over the chest. There's a master's mate uh, on deck. He hears the, the officer hollering. He thinks he's telling him to tell the seamen to come aboard. They swarm aboard, but nobody needed them. There's no room for them yet. And it says it takes a tall, furious, night-shirted Jack Aubrey to restore yeah. something like order. <laughs> ah, not a pretty sight for the Commodore. <laughs> no, no, the- no. All, all this disorder. Again, things swirling around. We're getting this idea of people and luggage and their gear, and it all seems like chaos. It feels like it could be very disorienting. Mike, in cases of social upset and disorientation, there's only one thing for it. We have to eat. <laughs> So at breakfast, we, we get, first of all, a, a, a sign of familiar social life. Everybody's sitting down to breakfast. But we also get something that's familiar and appeasing to all of us readers. We get an Aubreyism. Jack apologizes to Stephen for all the pandemonium, all this mad rushing up and down, he says, bellowing like gathering swine, which is you know, on, on the Richter scale of Aubreyisms is only quite low. It's about a two or a three, I think. But it's a pretty good one. You know, the, the gathering swine were uh, the ones cast out. I think in, in, in Mark's gospel, they were possessed by demons and Jesus cast them over the edge of a cliff. He cast a demon out of a man. The demons asked to go into the swine and the swine throw themselves, you know, rush madly there down and throw go. themselves. There you go. There you go. Thank you. Good knowledge. And that perhaps mixed with the bellowing, bellowing like a bull. So we've got swine and bulls and that's all very unfortunate if you've got a Jewish gentleman coming into the cabin, but we'll, we'll postpone that for another <laughs> time. Right There's an excellent breakfast, as well as good conversation then, spread before them. Every bite, though, is interrupted by messages from one ship or another, brought by washed and brushed and frightened midshipmen, asking for favours from the Commodore, for able seamen, for carronades, for stores, for the good word from the Commodore, for getting anything organised on shore. Life is swirling around Jack's head, as well as it's swirling around Stephen's head here. Jack is also bothered by the swirling form of Killick, continually twitching Jack's napkin to keep the, the breakfast gravy off his breeches there. 
and telling him to beware of all the different things that might stain his finest dress uniform before going aboard the flagship. And Mike, we, we've already heard here that Jack does not want to be reminded that his duty calls him to sit on this uh, court-martial aboard the flagship here. Yeah, and, and you know, as, as this is moving along, Jack heads to the flagship, and Stephen is approached by a familiar face, young Witherby. And I thought, wait, huh? Witherby? And, and yes, you read that right. You know, of course, O'Brien means Weatherby, <laughs> the youngster from the Bologna and the Ringle who followed Jack to the Pomone. But Weatherby has become Witherby in, in the hundred days here. Maybe this is a, as a little sad reflection here. Um, Weatherby becomes Witherby. It's not the first time that O'Brien's made a slip with a character's name like this. Uh, maybe also it's a sign that his editor in chief wasn't around. And uh, yeah. Ma- Mary might have picked that kind of thing up. Uh, she's not there, so... Maybe yeah. that's a sad thought behind Weatherby becoming Witherby. Yeah, Anyhow, great. Witherby it is. I'm pretty sure he stays Witherby for the whole of the rest of the book. So at least we have some consistency here, right? Right. You know, Stephen is surprised to see him there. He's been really unclear about, you know, who had followed the captain to the Pomone. And O'Brien tells us it's yet another example of Stephen's current state, which makes many things obscure unless he collects his mind and focuses on the present. So Stephen right. keeps sort of you know, drifting off back into the recent past and the loss of Diana. Well, Witherby, I'll, I'll keep with O'Brien's here, says that there's a boat going ashore now, and he understood that Stephen had an appointment and, you know, needed to head to land. So Witherby, Weatherby, being his good self, his good young self, and helping keep Stephen organized. Thank you. Yeah. So we get to go back ashore now with Stephen. He's going to go and meet this new addition to the gunroom, somebody whose name we haven't heard of yet. We heard a lot about his character and his profile and his potential role and how he will slot into the society aboard the Surprise. But he's there in Thompson's Hotel, described as a comfortable, unpretentious hotel, which counts as familiar territory as well for Stephen, I think. And uh, Stephen announces himself at the reception of the hotel, is sent up to this Dr. Jacobs's room, knocks on the door, and then hears a well-known voice from the inside of the room ask, Dr. Maturin, I presume? And so it is. This Dr. Jacob, who's an old, old friend and connection of Stephen's, not known to us, Mike, unless he's had his name massively changed from earlier in the canon, but not known to us, I don't think. This Dr. Jacob seizes Stephen, kisses him on both cheeks, and leads him into a room that's set out with cold drinks and a smoke from a hookah there, from the ceiling down to eye level. So this is a very homely, very kind of spy-friendly, I'm going to say, um, setting for Stephen to remake his acquaintance. Jacob says he's really glad that it is Stephen because he'd guessed that it might be from what he calls Sir Joseph's calculated indiscretions, presumably meaning you know, hints in letters and dispatches that have been placed there. He had guessed that it would be Stephen and had therefore brought an anatomical specimen. So... Stick a pin in narwhal horn, stick a pin in the hand. We might come back to these later. For this anatomical specimen is an example of palmar aponeurosis and the contractions, the balling up of the hand so that the nails are dug into the palm. It's called Dupuytren's contracture. Um, This particular disorder and this kind of anatomical disfiguration has fascinated Stephen. Stephen and Dupuytren, the guy after whom it's named, who was Stephen's doctor friend in Paris, the great surgeon and anatomist in real life, Dupuytren. Stephen and Dupuytren had both studied this and had a fascination for it. In the real life, this is a a real life disorder. And as we say, Dupuytren himself was a a real um, scientist and and physician. 
Dupuytren had published an account of the condition describing how a layer of tissue beneath the skin of the palm thickens, causing one or more fingers to curl, to contract, and to pull into the palm. And I'm sitting here doing this with my hand, and it's of no use at all to anybody who's listening to the show. But Mike, Mike can right. see it on the screen here. Dupuytren's paper, actually published in 1830, listed the causes of this contracture and listed the details of a surgical procedure to correct it that Dupuytren had figured out as a result of years of study of, uh, of, of autopsies. And Jacob moves out of the balcony into the sun as he brings out the jar that contains this hand, complete with aponeurosis and contracture, preserved in spirits of wine, he says the middle fingers so hard clenched against the palm that the nails had grown into the flesh. And Mike, this this next sentence sounds like a typical Stephen remark, but from Jacob's response to it, I'm guessing that he must have said it something like this. I've never seen a better example. I can't wait to dissect it. Because I, I, I love the way Jacob's response here. And you're you're right. You know, in the light there out there where on the balcony where he brought so Stephen could see this hand. When he hears this, Jacob looks into Stephen's face and asks if he's made some cruel self-diagnosis. Like, wait a minute, what's wrong with you here? And Stephen explains his personal situation. Orion writes in as few words as possible. And here we can, I, I can certainly hear O'Brien past. Mary's passing, you know, I, I want to say as few words as possible about this. And Jacob, I think, recognizes it. He knows Stephen well enough that he doesn't say anything. He just gives him a sympathizing squeeze on the shoulder and suggests that they walk out high on the rocks where they can discuss their mission in confidentiality, adding, that is to say, if you still feel concerned. And, and I think he's basically saying to Stephen, hey, hey, do you still want to do this? Yeah. You know, given what you are going through here. And Stephen says, I am wholly concerned, wholly committed. If it were not so wicked, I could almost be grateful for this very evil man and his odious system. Right. And I think Stephen is confirming Jack's comment to, to Lord Keith that fighting Napoleon is what's giving Stephen his reason to live right now. Yeah. Ah. Uh, <sighs> And again, you know, O'Brien sharing thoughts in Stephen's mind that might possibly have occurred to O'Brien. I'm sure O'Brien didn't have a conflict with Napoleon to pursue uh, in 1998, but I'm sure he thought that his his work on the books must have been the thing that kept him going and that kind of maintained his spirit while he was dealing with the loss of Mary. So together, Jacob and Stephen walk along the cliffs over Catalan Bay here in Gibraltar. Stephen's mechanically noting the variety of rare birds flying by. And this, the, the, the mechanical thing is like he's going through the motions. His heart really isn't in the naturalizing. But the presence of all these birds and the, the environment concentrates his mind. And he listens to all the intelligence that Jacob's brought with all his great sources, what he's gathered from the Adriatic ports and the Muslim fraternities about this urgent request for money to pay for these mercenaries that are going to try and interfere with the force that's building up against the uh, Bonaparte. Jacob also talks about the probable donor and the pressure that might be brought to bear on the day of Algiers. The day of Algiers being probably the local ruler who's sort of superior to this guy in Asgar who's got the gold. We'll see. However, he says they shouldn't do anything about Africa, about the gold, therefore, 
until they've had some success in the Adriatic. And here, Jacob's opinion seems to be mirroring that of D, which is that, first of all, Jack Aubrey's got to get up and burn some shipyards, and then we can figure out how to interfere with this mercenary plan. Stephen agrees. There's no argument about this, this being the right source of events. Um, his eyes follow some black storks flying past, and he sees the flagship past them is no longer flying the court-martial signal and the captain's barges are already dispersing. And I think we're meant to quickly cotton on to the fact that this is where Jack Aubrey is, this is where the court-martial has been being held for the officer from aboard the Pomone who was guilty, it was thought, of the unnatural and detestable sin. So let's see what happened. They walk back together then in silence, waiting for more intelligence in Mahon. Um, they keep looking at the main yard of the flagship because that's where we're going to see evidence that the commander-in-chief might be confirming the court's death sentence. Because out here, under Lord Keith's command, there's no right of appeal. A death sentence can be confirmed straight away, and there's not going to be a delay in hanging if one is to take place. Now, good news, there's no one hanging in the rigging when they get to the town. Um, Stephen then sees Jack coming ashore and introduces Dr. Jacob. And Mike, this is where we find out what happened in the absence of any kind of uh, any kind of capital punishment here. Yeah. They, you know, as, as they're shaking hands, Jack and Dr. Jacobs, a boat leaves the flagship with a bare grating and the soaked and wretched prisoner upon it. There's some catcalling from the shore, but not much. And half a dozen people, you know, run down to help this prisoner to land and drag up the belongings. Dr. Jacobs, sir, said Jack, I hope that you'll be able to come aboard without delay. I'm eager to be out of sight of this place. And privately to Stephen, he said, I repeated your no penetration, no sodomy, which floored one and all, although I must say that most of them were glad to be floored. I persuaded the others to find no more than gross indecency. And Stephen says, and is being towed ashore on a grating the set penalty for gross indecency? No, says Jack. We call it the use and custom of the sea. That is the way it has always been. End of chapter one. Wow. Uh, as you say, Mike, lots swirling around us in this chapter. And really interesting, this being the chapter in which O'Brien first writes about the loss of Diana, and therefore we presume the loss of Mary. Uh, the last sentence is about, you know, something that's eternal and enduring. This is the way it has always been. Yeah, yeah. That must have been important for him. Wow. So what do you make of it then? Well, you know, it's it's so... It, it, I gotta tell you, you know, the book appears, you, you know, you open the book and it's like one of those others in the canon that you just turn the page from the last book, right? You pick it up where, you know, we start and right where the Yellow Admiral finishes. But then O'Brien just rocks our world in this like in a page or two. Diana's dead. You know, Stephen certainly not himself, you know, certainly diminished physically, perhaps mentally and how much not himself. I'm not sure of at the moment. Admiral Stranra, you know, kind of the whole catalyst in this. There were other things, but he's the major force that made Jack decide, all right, I got to get out off the list for the time being because I'm going to get yellow. He's dead. It's over. We already know that his influence doesn't continue after him. So, and instead of Jack off to Chile as a private citizen, 
you know, now he's one of the few commanders in the Royal Navy with real work to do and ships to do it. So Stephen's life's turned upside down in not so good a way. Jack's life's turned upside down in a very good way. He now, Jack, has a very high profile mission, is currently working under his mentor, Lord Keith. And he has Queenie, one of his greatest advocates, you know, by Lord Keith's side, looking out for him. Now, Queenie has mentioned that Pellew is going to come over and take over as commander in chief. But she also said that she and Lord Keith are going to be staying close by for a while, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Why, you know, why we added that in, you know, is it Jack's going to have a very influential friend very close by? I don't know. Well, I think it wouldn't be a Jack Aubrey novel without some doubt about who's in command and whether Jack's fortunes might switch back again if there's somebody in command who's a bit less well disposed to him and his antics. Right. There's an interesting um, wrinkle in the story here for Stephen as well. Besides Diana being dead, so is Governor Wood in Sierra Leone. And we had heard for the first time, I think, mm. that he and his young widow, Christine, had never really had uh, a marriage that, that had been consummated. And she and Stephen had shared a few interests in common. Stephen had been inclined to... Uh, powder his wig and put on his best clothes when he was calling on her in Sierra Leone a couple of books ago. And she may even still have Stephen's potto. (laughs) And now Stephen is wrestling with a a letter that he says is a difficult letter to write to her. And that's another thing swirling around Stephen's head. Now, Mike, there's so much happening in this chapter. If you try to look for a pattern for the symbolism of all of it combined, I think it would be a real mess. But... We've got the news of Diana's death and therefore the the end of the the, the the earthly representation of Stephen's love for Diana. We've got this very indirectly written response to it, very indirect in terms of the way O'Brien's not really bringing us into Stephen's thoughts right now, not, not immediately for good reasons. We've got the court-martial court for unnatural acts. We've got the supposedly unconsummated marriage of, uh, of the Woods. O'Brien, despite where he must be at the low point that he must be, he's still really enjoying playing with relationships and sexuality and the diversity of ways that humans choose to experience them. We've got all the hallmarks of O'Brien still still in fine form, I think. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating. In this one chapter, we've got all of that, which is absolutely, you know, people and emotions and relationships and all that. And at the same time, you know, he's absolutely set up just a smashing potential book to, to come here. The squadron's mission has changed. It's it's become a great deal more important. Jack and Stephen are headed back into the surprise. I had the same reaction that you did, Ian. Hooray! You know, Jack and Stephen, the surprise. Yes, yes. It's a great intelligence mission and a great naval mission. I think sometimes, you know, one kind of took precedence or led to another. Now we're both, we both got orders. Here we go. Right. And together, you know, they could win all of the glory that they could ever want here, you know, in terms of Jack's career trajectory. Now we know it's never been that easy or straightforward. And uh-huh. O'Brien has this great way of setting us up to say, look, it's all, you know, it's not all sunny and roses. I'm not forgetting Diana, but, you know, it's like, boy, there's part of our hero's storyline that could go really good here. And and Chile, if we ever get there, once again, is going to have to wait. Yeah, for at least 100 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I know it's not a word we'd ever find in Jane Austen and, and O'Brien would never say it. And perhaps no literary criticism worth its salt would say it. But I think O'Brien's really set this up to be what I'd call a potential doozy. 
I, I think that's a very carefully chosen word, very apposite to the situation here. Mike. <laughs> so, what, what do you say then? Next week, just a little bit more of this Patrick O'Brien. Oh, with all of my slightly diminished heart. <laughs> French man of war is going to be available to help the gold over the water and to be sure that no vesicle vesicle <laughs> there you go sir <laughs> and to be sure that no vessel from any African shore can enter any Adriatic port